Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last week, we covered the action-packed period from around 300 BCE to 165 BCE. We started by exploring life in Greek-ruled Judea and Egypt, where Jews were initially protected amidst the back-and-forth struggle between the Ptolemies and Seleucids. We watched as the ever-increasing financial crisis led to the subsequent usurpings of the high priesthood by Jason and Menelaus, and to riots in Jerusalem. We then saw Jason violently retake the city, massacring Greek soldiers and Jews alike, and Antiochus IV's brutal retaliation against the Jewish population. Finally, we explored how the increase in Greek anti-Semitic brutality sparked the Hasmonean Revolt, where a family of Jews in the small town of Modi'in became freedom fighters against the Greeks and eventually retook Jerusalem for their own. This week, we'll follow those Hasmoneans to a rebirth of Jewish rule in Judea and see what happens when they come up against the newest and most powerful empire on the scene. Before we get into some history, though, as usual, let's do a quick geopolitical update. By the mid-2nd century BCE, there had been a major shift in the political players in the region of the Middle East. As we have already heard much about, the Greek Empire, which had fractured into several sub-factions after the death of Alexander the Great, had been the dominant power for some time, ruling over much of the Middle East. But their influence was beginning to wane, as several new powers were rapidly growing. The Roman Republic, the most important of these, was a semi-democratic republic who had by this time taken over much of the Italian peninsula and was starting to expand further outward, challenging other empires they came up against. To the east, in Mesopotamia, the Parthian Empire had emerged from a small tribe who had rebelled against the ruling Seleucids and now ruled over a large swath of territory. North of Judea, the Macedonian Empire, which had been a pretty major power over the previous century, was on the verge of ruin after being overtaken by Rome. And, right in the center of it all, were the Hasmoneans and their newly retaken, independent Jewish kingdom. In the first few years of his reign, Judah Maccabee continued to fight local battles in the area around Jerusalem to maintain Hasmonean control, but did not make any major plays to expand the small kingdom. In 161 BCE, Judah was killed in one of these battles, and the throne was left to his brother, Yonatan. Yonatan had a bit more of a diplomatic eye than his brother, and expanded the Hasmonean holdings a bit, even sending embassies to Rome to create the beginnings of a Jewish-Roman alliance. But in 142 BCE, just 19 years after his brother's death, Yonatan was also killed in battle, and was replaced by his brother, Shimon. Shimon was the brother who really started to shake things up for the Hasmoneans. As one of his first acts of business, he finally cleared the Acre in Jerusalem, expelling the last of the Greek soldiers who had remained there and cementing Jerusalem as a truly free Jewish city. It was also under Shimon's rule that the Roman Republic officially recognized the Hasmonean state as an independent kingdom, a huge step in diplomatic relations. Shimon was one of the more religious of his brothers second only to his brother Eleazar, who had been crushed by an elephant during the initial Maccabean revolt. And, as such, Shimon felt that he should not only be king, but Kohen Gadol as well. 
So he proclaimed himself king and high priest and declared that henceforth only direct descendants of the Hasmoneans could occupy the role. With this act, Shimon combined religion and politics in a way that Jewish tradition had never seen before. And you don't make a move like that without making a few enemies. In 134 BCE, just eight years after his accession to the throne, Shimon was assassinated by his son-in-law and was succeeded by his son, Yohanan. Yohanan ruled from 134 to 104 BCE and in many ways followed in his father's footsteps. He continued to expand the Hasmonean territory, plunging southeast into Edom, northward through Samaria and as far as the foothills of the Golan Heights, east into southwestern Syria and across the Jordan River into the mountains of Moab and the Ammonite Valleys, and finally south into the Negev Desert, taking ancient cities like Jaffa, Gaza, and Ashkelon, which had once been Philistine and Phoenician. Not only did Yohanan's army conquer, but as they did so, they proselytized aggressively, forcibly converting many of those living in the territories in which they conquered, an act never seen before in the Jewish world and which would never be seen again. Yohanan, aside from having a somewhat brutal military mind, also had an eye for economics. He became the first Jewish ruler ever to issue coins, coins which have been found by archaeologists and still exist to this day. The coins are small and bronze and are inscribed with images of shofrot, traditional Jewish trumpets made of ram's horns, and pomegranates, as well as Hebrew text reading Yohanan Kohen Gadol, Rosh Hever HaYehudim, Yohanan the High Priest, head of the Jewish community. As the Hasmoneans spread across the Middle East, the Seleucids, whom the Jews had forced out of Judea, were stewing, and in 134 BCE, the same year that Yohanan came to power, they were ready for a comeback. Antiochus VII and his army rode to Jerusalem and launched a two-year-long siege, one which nearly caused the fall of the entire Hasmonean dynasty. The Seleucids only agreed to lift the siege when Yohanan agreed to bend the knee and turn the kingdom back into a tributary state. Yohanan became beholden to the Seleucids and was called away by them for several years to help fight battles in the north. A short two years later, though, Antiochus VII was killed in combat, and Yohanan was finally able to return to Judea as king, where he ruled until his death in 104 BCE. By the time of Yohanan's passing, a deepening political divide was growing within the citizens of the Hasmonean state. One of these political groups, composed mostly of city elites, merchants, and priests, were called the Sadducees, or Tzedokim, a name which derived from the fact that many were associated with the priesthood. As a group, the Sadducees both had particular religious beliefs, but also certain political ones. Religion-wise, the Sadducees were very much adherent to the strictly written word of the Torah and were not interested in embellishing or engaging in interpretation of the text. If the Torah didn't say it, it wasn't to be taken seriously. Politically, these upper-class elites were quite satisfied with the status quo, a perfectly sensible position when the status quo is treating you well. As far as they were concerned, the increasingly militaristic and power-hungry Hasmonean kings were doing a perfectly reasonable job of running the Jewish state. But a new group was springing up as well, a group who felt quite differently than the Sadducees about the way things were going. This group was called the Pharisees, or Perushim, and they were deeply concerned 
that the more power the Hasmonean kings were able to consolidate, the more likely they were to deviate from the purity of Jewish law. The Pharisees didn't keep these feelings to themselves. They actually caused quite a stir. There are stories in both Maccabees 1 and Josephus in which groups of Pharisees pelted various Hasmonean kings with etrogim, a lemon-like fruit, in an attempt to compel them to return to traditional Jewish ways. But the king who took over from Yohanan, his brother Alexander Janaeus, Yohanatan in Hebrew, was not pleased with the growing unrest in the region. Yohanatan was known for being particularly headstrong and brutal. Imagine the Donald Trump of the Hasmoneans. He recklessly abandoned the alliance with Rome and violently quelled any Pharisaic uprising with brutal force. The growing political divide and the harsh retribution of Yohanatan ultimately led to a devastating six-year Jewish civil war during which thousands of Jews who were concerned about Yohanatan's rule actually defected to join the army of the Seleucid leader Demetrius III in hopes that the Seleucids would overthrow the Hasmoneans. Around 50,000 people were killed in this civil war, and eventually Demetrius was able to overthrow Yohanatan successfully. However, just as the Hasmoneans had been defeated, the Seleucids suddenly had to retreat to deal with other threats to their empire, and Yohanatan was able to retake his throne. In a fit of rage, and in classic Yohanatan style, he afflicted brutal retribution on those he felt to have been disloyal, crucifying 800 Jews who he deemed most guilty of betraying him, and slaughtering their families as the fathers watched in horror. All of this violence signaled to the Pharisees that the Jewish people were in a moment of crisis, and, to the Pharisees, it was clear that the Torah needed to be the anchor to which Jews held fast in times like this. But it was also becoming clear that the written law alone could not keep up with the constant upheavals of day-to-day -day existence in 2nd and 1st century BCE Judea. And so, the Pharisees began to create an oral law, meant to be both an extension of the Torah, as well as a way of connecting the ancient text to the daily struggles of modern life. A little presumptuously, perhaps, they insisted that their own interpretations should have equal authority as the Torah itself, a tradition that has carried forward to today. So, as a recap, we have an increasingly powerful Hasmonean dynasty which has combined the positions of King and Kohen Gadol into one almighty ruler, a brutal king in the form of Yohanatan, and a growing political divide among the population. Things in Judea were about to take a turn. It is worth highlighting at this point that from the time of Judah Maccabee until the end of Yohanatan's brutal reign, the Jewish state had enlarged by five or six times in area, rapidly expanding and pushing in on neighboring empires. At the same time, over the previous century, the Roman Republic, which had started out in the city of Rome and rapidly expanded outward, had gained considerable territory as well, by this time controlling an area as far east as Turkey, making both Syria and the Hasmonean state essentially next-door neighbors of the Roman Empire. The rapid expansion of the Jewish state meant that it was bound to become embroiled in inter-empire conflict in the region, which is exactly what happened in the mid-first century BCE. The growing instability and unrest in the Jewish territories, plus the constant warring between Macedonia, the Seleucids, and the Ptolemies for control of Syria, 
was starting to make the Romans feel a bit nervous about what consequences these conflicts might have for their empire. And so, in 64 BCE, the Roman Senate decided to send a prominent politician and military commander, a man named Pompey, to visit the city of Damascus in Syria in order to return some stability to the region. At the time Pompey and his army were saddling their horses and setting out for Damascus, a queen ruled in Judea. King Yohanitan had passed away almost a decade before, and his wife Alexandra had taken the throne in his place. But a big question hung in the air. Who would take over the throne upon Queen Alexandra's death? The two royal sons, Yonatan and Aristobulus II, both had their eye on the throne, but Alexandra ultimately decided to leave the rule to Yonatan. Just like with Onias and Jason decades earlier, a Lion King situation emerged. Aristobulus, understandably jealous of his brother, began to plot a takeover. For help, he turned to one of Judea's top generals, his advisor and right-hand man, Antipater. Antipater becomes a central figure in the history that follows, so it's worth knowing just a bit more about him. Antipater was born and raised in Idumea, one of the territories south of Judea that was conquered by King Yohanan during his reign. During that incursion, Antipater had been forcibly converted to Judaism, and he had continued to practice the religion in the decades since. He had risen as a prominent general in the Hasmonean kingdom, and during this rise had become close with the ruling family, particularly with one of the royal brothers, Aristobulus. So, in an attempt to drive Yonatan from the throne, this dynamic duo planned an attack on Jerusalem, which ultimately paid off. Yonatan was run out of town, and Aristobulus took the throne for himself, with Antipater as his right-hand man. Aristobulus was understandably happy with his success, but Antipater, being a shrewd man, was worried that Yonatan was still out there. He advised Aristobulus that it might be prudent to have his brother put to death, to tie up any loose ends, and ensure no further threats to his position. But Aristobulus wasn't so sure. Even though they were fiercely competitive with one another, he and Yonatan were, after all, still brothers. So he refused Antipater's suggestion. This, of course, left Antipater in a bit of an awkward position. He had just recommended that the new king murder his own brother, something the king had not been keen on. Worried that he now had a target on his back, Antipater decided to switch sides and slithered over to Yonatan, helping him in turn to plot his revenge against Aristobulus, Antipater's former buddy. The two both knew that they would need significant military force to overcome Aristobulus, and so Antipater suggested they recruit a mercenary army from Nabatea, an Arab region to the southeast of Judea, where his wife had grown up. The Nabataeans agreed to join Yonatan's cause, and in 64 BCE, the two men and their forces returned to Jerusalem and laid siege to the city. It is with all this brotherly mishigas going on that Pompey and his Roman legion showed up outside of Jerusalem, only to find it besieged by Yonatan and his Nabataean army. Alarmed at this, he called a meeting with both brothers to find out what was going on and to hear their respective cases for leadership. After hearing both brothers out, Pompey ultimately decided to make a deal with Yonatan, who he thought would be the easier brother to manipulate. 
Pompey would help Yonatan take back the high priesthood, on the condition that the Hasmonean state would swear fealty to Rome and become a tributary state. Yonatan, not having many options if he wanted his throne back, agreed to the deal, and in 63 BCE, Pompey launched a full-scale attack on Jerusalem, battering down the gates and occupying the holy city. All in all, 12,000 people were killed in the conflict. With Pompey now in control of the land of Israel, he divided it up into four main regions, Idumea to the south, Judea, Perea, and Galilee in the north. Just three years later, in 60 BCE, Pompey allied himself with two other Roman generals to form one of the most famous and successful political alliances in history, the first triumvirate of Rome. Pompey, along with his pals Crassus and Julius Caesar, would come to control much of the Roman Empire. Now, with Judea being under Roman control, Roman history is about to collide headfirst with our Jewish story. So, for a moment, let's shift our gaze to Rome to catch up on what had been going on there while we've been focusing on Judea. Since 509 BCE, Rome's government had been in the form of a republic, an early form of democratic governance. Within this system, there were three main groups that were responsible for running the state. The first and most notable of these groups were the magistrates, elected officials who were in charge of day-to-day -day governance. There were proconsuls, who were military governors in charge of keeping the peace in Rome's farther-off territories. And, a step above the proconsuls, were two consuls. The consuls were equivalent to Canada's prime minister today, except that there were two of them, who each held equal power. They were elected for one-year terms, and each held independent veto power over decisions, a clever system that ensured cooperation between the two leaders. The consuls were supported and advised by a second group, called the Senate. The Senate, aside from advising the consuls, was also responsible for making decisions about republic finances and handling foreign relations, including war. To choose the members of the Senate and to vote on various laws, gatherings of ordinary citizens called popular assemblies were held regularly, with the idea that the citizens of Rome would ultimately have a strong hand in governance. So, in 60 BCE, the first triumvirate was formed, and just one year later, Julius Caesar was elected co-consul along with Pompey, making the two men the most powerful in the empire. Caesar was a young man with a populist agenda and quickly became very successful and popular with the people. After his one-year term as consul, he was appointed proconsul and sent to govern the lands just southeast of land occupied by the Gallic people. Pompey, for his part, was left to govern in Rome. While out west in Gaul, Caesar and his army launched a campaign against the local tribes and successfully conquered much of the area making Caesar an even more influential person. The first triumvirate at this time essentially occupied rock star political status. But in 53 BCE, Crassus, the oldest member of the triumvirate, died. And without him, the triumvirate began to fracture. The Roman Senate, seeing how increasingly powerful and beloved Caesar was becoming, feared for their own power and urged Pompey to break his alliance with Caesar and joined the Senate in opposing him. Pompey was resistant, 
but after much persuasion, he was finally convinced. And in 50 BCE, the Roman Senate formally called for Caesar to leave his army in Gaul and return to Rome alone. But Caesar was no fool. He knew the power he had among the people and knew that the jealous Senate were not his allies. Who knew what would happen to him when he returned to Rome without an army to defend him? So Caesar agreed to return to Rome, but not alone. In a pretty brazen act, he brought all his legions with him. Of course, it's not surprising that the news of Caesar marching toward Rome with an entire army was a bit concerning to the Roman Senate. So, in 49 BCE, the Senate called on Pompey to defend the city against Caesar. Pompey agreed and took his legions east to Greece to prepare for the fight. But Caesar advanced more quickly than Pompey had anticipated, and before he could make it back to Rome with his army, Caesar had conquered the city. Having successfully captured the capital, Caesar turned his gaze towards Pompey, his old friend and now rival. In a final stand, Caesar and his army marched east to meet Pompey's army in combat at the Battle of Pharsalus. Caesar and his general, Mark Antony, pulverized Pompey's men, and Pompey fled to Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Egypt at this time was still being ruled by the Ptolemies, and Ptolemy XII had just died. Before his death, he had proclaimed that his two children would rule together in his stead. Ptolemy XIII, his 10-year-old son, and Cleopatra, his 18-year-old daughter. But, as we saw with Yonatan and Aristobulus, having two contending rulers never goes well. Egypt quickly fractured into a civil war, in which part of the population supported Ptolemy, and part supported Cleopatra. It was in the midst of this civil war that Pompey arrived in Alexandria. The guy clearly had a knack for showing up places in the middle of civil war. Pompey had of course thought he would be safe in the city, but the supporters of Ptolemy XIII had other plans. Knowing that Caesar and Pompey were adversaries, a group of Ptolemites murdered Pompey, hoping to curry favor with the powerful Caesar. But despite their adversarial relationship, Caesar and Pompey still shared a bond, and Pompey's murder made Caesar furious. So he marched his army to Alexandria and, in a convenient alliance, joined forces with the young Cleopatra and her followers to take revenge on the Ptolemies. In the aftermath, Cleopatra ascended to the Egyptian throne and struck up a love affair with the dashing Caesar. This affair had two significant consequences. First, it meant that Egypt had become essentially a client state of Rome, with Cleopatra being loyal to Caesar. And second, it resulted in the birth of a son, who would be one of the heirs to Caesar's throne. Although Caesar was powerful, he couldn't have launched so successful a campaign all by himself. He had recruited help along the way from various people, one of which just happened to be our old friend Antipater. As a reward for his assistance, in 47 BCE, Caesar made Antipater procurator of Judea, essentially a local governor and granted him official Roman citizenship. Yonatan, son of the former Queen Alexandria, was named Ethnarch, leader of the people, which was largely a figurehead title and really didn't bestow too much power. Antipater decided to use his new appointment as procurator to his family's advantage and gave his two sons leadership positions, 
Phasael was made governor of the city of Jerusalem, and Herod governor of Galilee. On Caesar's return to Rome, he was absolutely adored by the people and eventually was appointed as a supreme leader, called a dictator, of Rome for the rest of his life. But, as we have seen before in this history, all powerful men seldom last long. Fearing his increasing power and disagreeing strongly with his populist politics, a group of his political opponents, led by a man named Brutus, attacked him on March 15th, 44 BCE, ending his spectacular life. Shortly before his death, Caesar had adopted his nephew, Octavian, as his son, making Octavian the true heir to Caesar's throne. So, upon his death, Octavian became the new dictator and formed a second triumvirate, along with Mark Antony, Caesar's top general, and a man named Lepidus. At this point in time, Rome's rule was essentially split into two. On one hand was the second triumvirate, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus, who had technically inherited rule from Caesar himself. On the other hand was the Roman Senate, Brutus and Cassius, the main co-conspirators who had assassinated Caesar. The triumvirate, united in their anger at Julius Caesar's murder, set out to wage war against Brutus and Cassius to avenge Caesar's death. Brutus and Cassius prepared to fight back, and to help finance the impending war, they ordered their subjects, including the Judeans, a heavy increase in taxes. Antipater, being the procurator of Judea, was responsible for collecting these funds and decided to comply with Cassius's request, making him a very unpopular man among the Judean people. Just a year after Caesar's death, Antipater himself was assassinated by one of his tax collectors, leaving his son Herod to take his place as unofficial procurator of Judea. The two Roman armies finally met at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BCE, and Mark Antony and Octavian ended up winning a decisive victory over Brutus and Cassius. Emerging triumphant, they split rule of the Roman Republic three ways. Antony became ruler in the east, Octavian in the west, and Lepidus in Africa. Herod, declaring himself a die-hard supporter of Antony and Octavian, despite his father's allegiance with Crassius, was formally confirmed as procurator by the triumvirate. Of course, as we have seen, this was a time of constant tension between empires, and so it wasn't long before Rome's claim to the land of Israel was challenged. Remember that in the feud between Yonatan and Aristobulus, Yonatan had ultimately prevailed, and now sat as ethnarch in Israel, along with his entourage, including Herod, Phasael, and the Roman Empire as backers. Well, Aristobulus's son, Antigonus, was still bitter about his father's defeat. In 40 BCE, he gathered an army from the neighboring empire of Parthia and attacked Judea with the aim of recovering the throne for his side of the family. The incursion was a success, and Antigonus took the throne. In the scuffle, Yonatan was captured, his ear was cut off, and he was shipped off to Babylon, never to return as high priest or ethnarch. Phasael, Antipater's eldest son, who had been appointed governor of Jerusalem, committed suicide for fear of being similarly tortured, and Herod, his brother, fled to Rome. And that's where we'll end for this week. 
with Judea under control of Antigonus and his Parthian army, and Herod, who was soon to become a crucial figure of Jewish history, fleeing for his life to Rome. We'll see you next week on The Jewish Story. Mm -hmm.